Well, hey there, and welcome to the Emergence Community Leaders Podcast, the podcast dedicated to diving deeper into the themes and topics we study each week as we gather together to worship Jesus. Our hope is that this will serve to further equip our church with more insight, context, and background into the weekly sermons and help the proclamation of God's Word on Sunday turn into the application of God's Word in our daily lives and ultimately ending up in the transformation of people in our local communities. Thanks for joining us here today, and let's get started as we dive into this week's discussion. All right. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. What's up, Doug? Good to be with you, buddy. Good to be with you, too. How are you doing this week? Uh, you know, we're doing all right. We got the uh, di- a couple of the kids a day off of school, so doing this from home today. And uh, yeah, so having a couple extra kids home today definitely makes the work day interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, um, maybe we'll be greeted by a few of them today in the podcast, I'm sure. A distinct possibility. Yeah. It's always fun on Theology Thursday where your kids refuse to allow you to work at home. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. All right, buddy. So let's take a look at our second week of our series. We're jumping into Joshua chapter two, uh, very appropriate for the second week of Joshua. And this week we're really kind of focusing in on the story of Rahab too. Um, Doug, you want to give us a little bit of a summary of kind of what we saw this week, kind of what Ryan covered, and then maybe if you don't mind uh, kind of speaking into some of the points in the book as well into our uh, companion book, I mean. Sure. Just real quick recap. So this is uh, uh, the first like strongly narrative section of the book of Joshua where it's like, you know, characters talking to one another a lot, you know. And this is uh, the story of of Rahab and um, who is an inhabitant of Jericho. Now Jericho is a, a very strategic city in the land. Uh, in terms of cities, it's not particularly imposing it's not like this huge thing i think we pointed out that it was it only spans about six acres but it's in a very key spot if you want to move throughout the land you kind of need to control this area or at least it's it's like that's why it's a valuable space on the monopoly board you think think of it that way because it's at the juncture of several different roads so we have some israelite spies sent into um uh sent into the city and uh rahab uh, who is identified in the narrative as a prostitute, hides them and um, makes it clear why she's doing so, why she hides them from the king's soldiers who come looking for them. And it's, uh, it's because she's heard about what the Lord has done, and that hearing in her has produced a faith, um, and that, that, uh, a belief and a fear of God. And um, as a result... Um, she acts faithfully and uh, conceals their presence, and uh, she is ultimately given a place within Israel, within the people of God. And uh, some interesting things here. So first off, I think Ryan did a very good job in uh, talking about the implications of her background and how that's sometimes, and we, we do touch on that in the study, uh, in the community group questions for this week about how, um, you know, it's probably wrong to think of her as uh, just a sexually licentious woman who's nothing but, you know, she's just, she got into prostitution because she liked the idea, right? Right. That it's, it's probably much more exploitative. Um, so that, that's an important, important angle on this. Uh, but also, uh, it, the, I think this is important because this is one of those passages that's along this trajectory in the Old Testament that is some, in some places stronger than others. But this idea that the Lord 
wants to bring in all sorts of people, not just ethnic Israelites, into his covenant community. And so far from just being this nationalistic text where, um, you know, it's only like almost like racist, right? Like, like if you're Israelite, you're awesome and God loves you. If you're not, God hates you. And, and it's, it is not that. The actual picture of Old Testament theology is that Israel is to be a light to the nations, and all the na- and the hope is that other nations would come to know the Lord through Israel, through the covenant people of God. And um, it's interesting that that is kind of the 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 story that this book of Joshua kicks. That's that's what it wants to tell us first. Okay. Um, and so yeah, so all that stuff, and we get a good picture of. I guess you could say an Old Testament version of conversion in it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of underpinnings in this text too, of the woman at the well, which is really cool. I mean, I know we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but all right, let's take a look at this guide that we have for this week. Getting started section, pretty normal, um, typical for what we have week in and week out. And then we're going to kind of follow along the, the arc of the sermon this week. And we're going to start with backgrounds and, and prejudgments, right? This idea, Doug, you just mentioned this a moment ago of, making a making an assumption an assumption or a prejudgment or um you know just stereotyping folks to a point a, a little bit and we can kind of do this with Rahab in this text right the text presents us with Rahab and and describes her as a prostitute and from that alone we can kind of walk away and and just make a prejudgment about her when really a lot of this text here is talking about this conversion to faith it's pointing to her intentionally now, you alluded to this too, Doug, in, in the sermon Ryan was mentioning, like, it, it's likely not that she was woke up one day and be like, oh, you know what, let me become a prostitute. She was probably forced into this or, or whatever else, you know what I mean? Her life didn't, you know, her life choices didn't necessarily give her much option, likely, uh, except uh, the world that she ended in. So let's, let's take a look at this. We've got a couple questions here. Um, Ryan pointed out, we often think of prostitutes in Bible one-dimensionally, um, however, much like today, those who sold themselves in this way were often forced into it because of life circumstances, other injustices. Thus, we should see them with the compassion and eyes of Jesus rather than with our own judgmental assumptions, right? So just to push back to remind us like how we should kind of think of people regardless of their sin, which is really the same way Jesus thinks of us regardless of our sin, right? So First question here, in what way or ways can our assumptions about somebody be a hindrance to faithfulness in Christ? Right. Obviously, you know, it's probably self-explanatory, but, you know, God welcomes all people, all tongues, all nations, everyone, regardless of who they are, what they've done, who I am or what I've done um, to the cross, to saving faith in Christ. And, And, you know, that's important for any Christian to truly understand. And, you know, especially in this season, that means political standings, that means prejudices. That means, that means everything, uh, all people. Question number two, name a time where your own assumptions or prejudgments were either proven wrong or found incomplete. So a question here, just to kind of help get folks talking. Question number three, what can we learn from the fact that the text of Joshua does not make any moral judgments about Rahab, either having to do with her background or with her dishonesty toward the King's messengers? Doug, I'd love for you to comment on that a little bit, actually, if you don't mind. (laughs) Yeah, this is, uh, as I, um, uh, as I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, this is a good question to ask of this, but it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to have a definitive answer on it. So, um, so the issue here 
Uh, well, I mean, it depends on the part of the question, I suppose. Um, it's sometimes difficult, uh, right? Because you have um, people in the scriptures who do things that are immoral sometimes, and it does the the narrative does not take a moment to stop and dwell on that and say, and here's the thing that they did right, and here's the thing that you did wrong. So if you have a similar situation, you should avoid it, right? Or you should do this or that. Or um, this is descriptive text. It's not, descriptive, not, not prescriptive, of course. It, Exactly. Yeah. And one thing we kind of want to be careful of is, um, is, uh, making meaning about things that the text doesn't seem to focus on. Hmm. So like, uh, the text should somewhat set our, our agenda for like, what are like, when we're asking, what does this mean? Um, the text should sort of set our agenda for like what it expects us to infer and not infer. Sure. So, Like another classic example of this is the Hebrew midwives in the beginning of the book of Exodus, when they lie to the officials about the, uh, the Hebrew women being more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And, uh, and that's why they're not able to kill the Egyptian male firstborns because, uh, because that's technically a lie, but then they're kind of rewarded for it. And, and just like here, you have a lie that she's rewarded for. She's, she's, you know, becomes part of the covenant people of God for not giving up these spies. Right. Um, and there's different ways to parse this. So, so first off, we do want to say that the text does not pause to muse about it. And so if we do, we need to do, go in at least knowing that like, this might not be something that we're supposed to focus on. And I think Ryan even said it in the sermon. He said, like, this is a way that a lot of people go off into a ditch on this chapter and they just end up looking at this. Right. So when something is not, when there's not a clear indication in the text that we're supposed to really be leaning hard into something, it's probably a good idea not to lean that hard into it. Right. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it is relevant for Christians to say, like, you know, if we're faced with something like this, what is the appropriate response? And the, the classic example would be, you know, you're hiding Jews from the Nazis and they come knocking on the door and say, are there Jews here? You know, and there's an obligation to save life, but there's also an obligation to not lie. And I think here you would have a little bit towards the side to say, that uh, that we have an obligation to greater moral standards. So there's a moral standard to preserve life. And especially there's more at play here in that, like she understands that these are the people of God and that the, this is the Lord's doing and stuff, right? And, and so um, when we're faced with that kind of moral dilemma, I think it's legitimate to say that we have to go with what is the higher moral obligation to the best that we can See, and whether or not you regard yourself then as having sinned and I need to ask forgiveness for having lied or, or no, there is no sin, right? That's, that's a little bit stickier of a question, yeah. but, um, gray area, of course, you know what I mean? Cause white lie is not something that God's asking from us. You know yeah, he's I mean? not like thrilled about it, right? but nevertheless, like, you know, we do have scriptural reason for saying that like we have sometimes, uh, we're not always given one clear moral path and we have to make a decision. And yeah, yeah. 
It's funny, like even the way that we that we're kind of asking this question this week, Doug, you know, what can we learn from the fact that the text of Joshua does not make any moral judgments about Rahab? Well, we shouldn't be making any judgments either. Right. It's not focused in on this. I mean, like when I see this in the text, it seems a little bit like it's irrelevant. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's funny. It's it's a description, but realistically, it's not the point of the test, the text. It's not really what we're trying to focus in on here. And so in some ways, it's almost like it's irrelevant. Like her sin is irrelevant. Why? Because God calls all of us, regardless of our path, of our past, our history or anything else to come yeah. to the cross, to come to him. And so I don't know, part of it, you know, at, maybe, at, you, know at, you can argue I'm reading into it maybe a little too much, but yeah. it, it doesn't seem like it's like it's necessarily relevant to understand what God's doing here. Which I think is itself a, a point of application. Like there comes a, when we're given that decisive moment of what are we going to do? Are we going to follow the Lord or not? Mm. Our background is there, but it sh- it's not the determining factor. It's not the determining factor in who will come. Like the text could just as easily not have told us that she was a prostitute. Right. I mean, it could have just said a woman. Right. But it does yeah. tell us that she was a prostitute. And and so, like, you know, I th- I think on that grounds, you can say that it, we're, we are to stop and marvel at how willing the Lord is to spare people regardless of their sinful background. Mm. Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, there's more that could be said about this. Yeah. Um, a lot of times prostitution in the ancient world is linked to uh, – cultic religious significance right so there are cultic prostitutes at at a lot of these pagan temples and um it's extremely uh common and perhaps you know uh you know and the the old testament specifically kind of leans into that aspect of sexual deviancy among the inhabitants of canaan Mm. and so um you know rahab is turning from that so I think at the very least what it does is it shows us that one's background uh, is, uh, is, is not particularly, uh, d- d- does not prohibit one from entering into the covenant people of God. Awesome. Let's press on here. So question number four asks, sometimes people avoid being involved with the church because they feel that their sin is either too heinous or that they're beyond God's mercy. How does the story of Rahab speak into this? What other biblical examples do you know that reinforce the truth that no one is beyond God's mercy? I think we kind of talked about this already a little bit. Um, you know, another biblical example that that pops into my mind, obviously, is the woman at the well. Um, just, you know, Jesus's heart there of calling her forward and all of her accusers standing before her, Jesus drawing a line in the sand. I mean, that's that's one that's very, very vivid in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think I think with the woman at the well in John four, um, you do have yeah you it's interesting there because you also have the notion of sexual licentiousness um, mm-hmm. kind of coming into the picture, but there also I think we're to note that in that culture a woman women did not usually initiate divorce you know and she's had multiple husbands mm-hmm. and the one she's with now is not her husband and so how much of a uh, how much is a, uh, uh, you know, how much of this is, is the way she is, how much of it is, is kind of what's been done to her Mm. and just remembering her as like, you know, as, as a slut is not the, is, is, is probably our own cultural lenses, not taking into account why a woman in that, in the first century, you know, Samaritan context Mm. would have had that many husbands. Mm. That's, 
probably not the explanation of what's going on there. Sure. Um, I mean, another example that pops in mind too is David, you know, David's heralded as, you know, as the great mm -hmm. King throughout, you know, the nation of Israel and, you know, there's immorality in his testimony as well. You know what I mean? Right. There's, there's multiple biblical examples of this. And really, I mean, the question's kind of ironic because, you know, what examples do you know that reinforce the truth that no one is beyond God's mercy? You right. can pick any name in scripture other than Jesus and you will find some kind of path of sin. Yeah. <laughs> we are all broken. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's the tragedy of sin. You know what I mean? From page one, humanity is doomed and so all of these stories of faith, you know, the, the hall of faith, if you will, and Hebrews and, and all of these things, you know, they are not without their own brokenness, you yeah. know, and it's because of Christ that we have hope. And so, you and know, you can, you can pick any number of. They're uh, almost there as like a rebuke against people who would think otherwise. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, let's uh, move on to our second section here, Doug. Uh, hearing, which leads to conviction. And so we're going to dive into Joshua 2 verses 8 through 14. And then we're actually going to talk a little bit about Romans ten seventeen, right? Uh, which tells us that faith begins with hearing. And so, you know, we also see this in our passage this week in the story of Rahab, because she explains that her fear of the Lord uh, came as a result of her having heard what God did through Israel, right? Mm. And so this truth should remind every Christian that we have a responsibility and even an obligation to really open our mouths, you know, to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, right? So there's an important lesson here that Ryan was, you know, teaching this weekend, which is essentially that hearing the truth should lead to conviction of that truth, which in turn should lead to action as well, right? Mm -hmm. So our first question, question number five says, what are some factors that you think would make Christians apprehensive about sharing their faith and how should Christians address such challenges? Um, love this question. Um, I don't think necessarily have to, you know, we have to answer it here, Doug, but obviously, you know, some of those things might be uh, coworkers, opinions of family or friends, um, you know, fear of being cast out, fear of being, um, you know, uh, persecuted, I guess, for your faith in some ways, although realistically in our Western culture, how much do we really get persecuted anyway? But good question to continue uh, conversation moving along. And then question six, what do you think it is that moves a person's heart from merely hearing to hearing with conviction and where do we see this at work in our passage this week? So great question, right? What's the difference? You know, what is it that moves a person's heart from genuinely just hearing something to hearing with conviction as Ryan was talking about in the sermon? Uh, Doug, you want to explain that one a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's, there's definitely kind of two angles that you could take on this. Um, you know, you can talk about it from a human angle and talk about, um, open-mindedness, humility, and things like that. And, and those are all relevant. Um, but I think we also want to fully acknowledge um, the ways in which this, it's really the spirit of God that, that kind of turns our hearts, that, that opens our hearts to, to hear the word. Um, so there's, there's a strong element, I think, of, of God's action through his spirit, like in, in, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus says that the Spirit will come and convict the world of of sin and righteousness and judgment. Right, like that's that's the Spirit's role, mm -hmm. um, and the Spirit's role is to give life to us and open the eyes of our hearts and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, but and but that that the the important thing to realize is that like when what does that look like in human experience? And in human experience, that looks like humility that looks like um 
openness to the truth, um, willingness to to think self-critically about oneself and to let go of pride and to trust the Lord with salvation and to realize that, uh, you know, we ourselves are unrighteous and unable to gain his favor. So there's, there's both, I think we need to be acknowledging both angles to be doing things uh, through the Lord's power and in confidence that the spirit can do what we cannot. Um, but also encouraging one another as the scripture um, tells us to, to have hearts that are open and hearts that are willing to, seriously consider following Christ. Think of what it would have looked like for Rahab and for the inhabitants of Jericho. Um, You know, they all kind of heard, uh, but not all, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to, you know, really know for sure what those who didn't do what Rahab did or feel like she felt um, or, or develop the faith that she had. It's hard to know like what would have been going through their minds. Uh, but the clinging to sin is an irrational conviction and to thinking I, I can ride this one out. Um, this is, you know, far off. This is never going, you know, God's judgment will never come upon me and uh, kind of ignoring it. There is an irrationality in that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well said. So let's move on here, Doug. The next, the next piece here is kind of this idea of the fear of the Lord, right? And so throughout the Bible and specifically in the Old Testament, we see faith uh, often described with the term the fear of the Lord or as the fear of the Lord, right? And so explaining this this week, Ryan kind of pointed us to the Gospel of Matthew, reminding us of Jesus's words in Matthew 10. And so we're going to jump to Matthew 10 verses 26 to 33, which I have here. And it reads, So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously Jesus's words here. So question number seven, uh, often people define the fear of God simply as respect, right? Do you agree with this idea? And based upon Matthew 10, as well as our passage in Joshua this week, how would you personally define the fear of the Lord? Mm. Yeah. So this, uh, this is, uh, kind of a, a common thing that you hear is that, you know, we, we try to water down that concept of fearing God. Like God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. Uh, and so it's, you know, when, when we read in the Bible about the fear of the Lord, it just means we need to respect him. And the truth, uh, the, the part of that, that's, you know, we can maybe hang on to is yet yeah, God doesn't want us to fear him in one sense, but the way we get to not fearing him is by fearing him. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, by 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 realizing that I need to take the Lord seriously, hmm. and um, and I think you see it very vividly in Jesus's words here, right? Like when he says that uh, you are, you should not fear those who could kill the body, but fear the one who could cast body and soul into hell. That sounds like he's talking about a lot more than just respect. Right. There there is a fear aspect there, and I think. Uh, the idea is that um, who who are you concerned about pleasing? 
Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of who you fear. You know, I, I, I fear my mortgage company, right? What's going to happen if they foreclose on my house? And so I pay a lot of money to keep my house every day because I'm concerned of what would happen if I don't take them seriously. Um, I'm concerned about, um, you know, what will happen if I don't take a, a police officer who's, who's pulling me over seriously or something like that, you know, like, and yeah. that I think is, and, and you amp it up to the, to the, to the concept of God and to, to, to the, to, to who God is. And, uh, the, the fact that we are accountable to him, how seriously do I take that? Because oftentimes it's, um, when I have the opportunity to do what I believe God wants me to do or do what the Lord wants me to do, I'm afraid to do it because I'm afraid of consequences in my life, what people will think of me, what it will cost me. Um, I'm afraid of um, man, uh, of man, of man, yeah, of man, of of all kinds of things. And I think what the scripture is telling us when it talks about the fear of God, it's like, no, the one the one uh, whom we should be the most concerned about offending and, and, and uh, the, the consequences that we should be most concerned with are those that happen when we disregard the Lord in our lives. Yeah. I was, I'm always reminded of Proverbs too, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's like, it's at that point where you begin genuinely fearing God, that mm-hmm. wisdom arrives. I remember in my own life, I, you know, it was almost like a fear of God that I didn't want to go to church or I didn't want to think about it. You know what I mean? And I know a lot of times that it's a fear of what's genuinely true. It's the same reason why, you know, folks don't want to open up their mail if they know it's a bad notice or a bill (laughs) or something like that. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's almost like we avoid exactly that, which we need to face, you know, and it's, oftentimes it's the fear of God that leads you to repentance. You know what I mean? That leads you to a place of recognizing how deadly sin really is. And, uh, and and it brings about uh, saving faith, which is awesome. Yeah. And, Um, and I, and you know, I, I also, um, I, I also often um, kind of think about um, uh, the Israelites when they're, when they're at Mount Sinai Mm. and um, you know, they, they, they kind of freak out when when the Lord reveals Himself to them, and the mountain is trembling, and and you know this is when the the Ten Commandments uh, come down. And some of you may have heard me talk about this verse before, but I think a very interesting verse on the fear of the Lord is Exodus twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. So the people just you know they've they've seen this display of God's power on the mountain. And they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. So they're afraid right there. And Moses says to the people in verse 20, he says, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Right. right? So don't fear. <laughs> don't be afraid uh, because God wants you to be a- <laughs> to fear him. Yeah. <laughs> the reason he's doing this is so that you'll fear him. So you don't need to be afraid because if you fear him, then you don't have to be afraid. Mm. Right. As, as long as you do what the Lord is asking of you, then there's no reason to fear. Mm. So which, that, which kind of answers question eight here too, right? Our companion book is really uh, talking about how those who fear God are the ones who need to fear him the least. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think this means? Obviously we talked about that a little bit. Um, Let's move on. There's two practical questions here, Doug, in this next section, uh, which is a confession that conforms everything, right? 
Mm. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean, Doug? I know that Batesel said that I, in the script. Yeah, I think what he means by that is that, um, you know, if we take seriously what we confess with our lips about God, then everything in our life gets oriented around that. I see. Okay. You know what I mean? Like a confession that isn't just me checking a box or, or passing some kind of theology exam, a confession that, that is truly uh, biblical and is impacting me as it should is something that should impact my whole life. Mm, got it. So question number nine, what were some things that Rahab risked in order to follow God? And what do you think this communicates to us about how we should be bold in our faith? And then question number 10, what are some risks that the Lord has asked you to take in your own faith and where has trusting God cost you personally? So two very practical questions uh, for us to kind of dwell on uh, this week as we kind of sum up uh, our commu- our, um, our guide this week and, and really our passage. You know, where is your own faith costing you? And, you know, what are some of those things that really God calls us to be um, faithful with, to trust him with, to put at risk for the sake of accomplishing the Great Commission. Uh, The last section here, faith, action, and the salvation of others. We're going to jump into the final passage here, Joshua 2, verses 15 to 21. Rahab's actions resulted in the salvation of the Israelite spies as well as her own family. And this is a rather vivid picture of the way our fear of God ultimately results not just in our own good, but the good of others as well. So question number 11, in your own opinion, is it possible to truly fear the Lord without your faith impacting other people? Uh, Doug, you were kind of making fun of me about this before we started recording here, but because it's a yes or no question. So the answer is no. (laughs) I'll just tell you right now. Um, I mean, honestly, let's talk about that a little bit, right? So is it really possible to, to truly fear the Lord without your faith impacting other people? Like, what kind of like all I hear in my head right now is James, <laughs> you, know, yeah. the book, you know, the book of James, but like, what is your faith? You know what I mean? At the end of the day, like, what is it? If you genuinely fear the Lord, if you truly understand what Jesus has saved you from, and that's absolutely transforming your life and is at work in your heart, then how can that not affect everything else in your life? Right? You don't come into contact. You don't meet the creator of all things, the author of salvation, the savior from sin and walk away as if your life was just the same the day before. It, it, do, it doesn't happen like that. You know, Jesus is all transforming. He, it, it's, it's really why, you know, we talk about, um, you know, putting everything to death and being resurrected to life in Christ. You know what I mean? It's a new life in Christ. It's a new heart. Um, you know, I love Paul's words in Galatians two, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, and it like, it's just this beautiful display that what was, what once was is now dead and I've been made new in Christ. Right. So short answer to the question for number 11 is no, (laughs) it's no, it's no. And as I mentioned uh, before we started recording, and if your answer is only no, that's lame because you should, (laughs) yeah, you should be talking about, about this, um, for sure. And, and keep in mind, too, the focus here on the impact of others. So it's not just about it changing our lives, but changing our lives in the sense in which, you know, so if I, if I fear God, then I'm going to be a different kind of husband and father than I am if I, if I don't. Mm. And uh, really, the, the, the seriousness with which I take other people's walk in faith is, uh, is, is another great measure of whether or not my confession is just words or whether or not I truly am fearing God in my life, I guess you could say. Mm. 
Um, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Question number 12. I, I love this point that Ryan made. It really is a beautiful point that kind of falls out of the text, right? Consider, you know, that these Israelite spies, right, in the story of Rahab, the first believers that Rahab had ever really known did not exploit her as probably most of the other men in her life had, and most likely showed Rahab that God, that the God that she now fears has made man into, has, makes men into good people, right? So basically Rahab meets these two men and, and most likely for the first time in her life, she's looking at both th- this God that she fears and the men that stand there representing him, respecting her, you know, and, and kind of what that probably meant to Rahab, you know, what are some opportunities that you and I have to show people this very kind of same thing, right? I love, I love this question. It's a beautiful point that fell out of the sermon, but if you look around us, you know what I mean? At the craziness that is our society right now and people ripping each other's heads off about politics and, and every, you know, social dilemma you can possibly imagine, like what opportunities do we have as Christians to really be the example of Christ that, that the Bible calls us to, right? How do we walk accordingly to what Jesus, you know, calls us to in, in saving faith? How do we put our faith on display? How do we show others the love of Christ? How do we call others to salvation as well? You know, what opportunities legitimately do you have to do that? I'll tell you one that I think's, you know, just the first thing that pops up on my mind right now. But like, if you look all over the place on social media, everybody's screaming about politics. Doug, I think you and I may, may have mentioned this a little bit last week, but my, I, I honestly hope, my hope is that for us as a church emergence, right? That we would be a people that walk, you know, recognizing that we have a freedom to be able to vote, but at the same time, recognizing that the hope of man is not in any one man, right? It's in Christ the God man, right? It's my only hope for anyone sitting on the throne is Jesus. And regardless of what you believe, regardless of who you're voting for, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of how you feel about this issue or that issue, I love you anyway, because Jesus does. And I want to be able to have a conversation with you and I want to welcome you forward, right? My hope is that we would be that people, that Christians would be that people and and be a light on a hill, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, I think it's, um, one thing I've kind of been realizing about that um, this week is that um, this is for, for people who don't, for a lot of people in our culture, righteousness comes from political convictions. You know, the way that you know you're a good person is if you know who to vote for in any particular cycle or what policies should be in place and things like that. And, you know, I, certainly I don't, I don't shy away from, you know, discussion about politics where in, in those places where it seems like it's, uh, we're using deter- discernment, it can be um, constructive, but you also have to really realize the culture. I mean, if, if someone doesn't know God, then like that's, that's the pinnacle of how people get changed. It's by having the right leaders in place and things like that. And um, that just see, um that just seems like a uh, like a distinctively worldly way to be thinking about this. Again, not in the fact that uh, as a Christian, I feel like I, I can use my God-given discernment to help inform me on these things, but but knowing though that like the hope that I need to be offering people is is not you know what some political party is trying to sell me. And make no mistake, they are trying to sell us. 
they're trying to sell us in, in thinking that like this is you know this is the way that uh, th- this is the way this is the way to realize utopia or this is the way to uh, to, to institute righteousness in our society. And it's not. If the gospel isn't in there, then we're we're preaching. We might be preaching a message that's more moral than the next guy, but we're not really giving a distinctively Christian message. Yeah, right. Uh, well, well said, Doug. Honestly, and so you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of other examples that'll fall out of this as well as we kind of end conversation. But as we do uh, for this week, you know, as as we're kind of thinking through this, well. Keep a couple of things uh, in mind as we continue to pray. Um, pray that the Lord would continue bringing conviction to our hearts, first and foremost, when we hear his word, right? That it wouldn't just be hearing, but hearing that leads to conviction, conviction that leads to faith and action. Um, and pray also that God would make us a people of action and not just simply hearers, right? So that's our, that's our prayer for this week. That's our prayer for all of us. Thank you guys so much for leading. Doug, thank you for your time today. And uh, we're looking forward to being with you guys, um, praying that God would use you powerfully, powerfully uh, in this time before we really get to, you know, kind of be back together. It's, it's cool to see over the horizon a little bit, to see, you know, our church gathering together, you know, in person also digitally and also hybrid. I recognize that many of you guys are, are leading different types of groups and all those variations. And so to that end and however God's led you forward, uh, thank you for being faithful. We are all praying together uh, that we would be humble and grace-filled and just grateful that we get to walk together and get to call others to this amazing hope that we have in Christ. Thank you guys for your faithfulness. We'll look forward to talking with you next week.